Uh, we're going to look at an incident in Luke chapter 8. That's a familiar story, but maybe you hadn't thought through some of the um, practical aspects of it. And I trust the Lord will use it with us this morning. I'm going to read verses 22 through 25, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Now on one of those days, Jesus and his disciples got into a boat, and he said to them, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they launched out. But as they were sailing along, he fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and to be in danger. And they came to Jesus and woke him up, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the surging waves, and they stopped, and it became calm. And he said to them, Where's your faith? They were fearful and amazed, saying to one another, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? Father, we come to your word asking you to do what I cannot do, and that is to, by your spirit, take it and apply it to every person here. They, everyone here, Lord, has different needs that I'm not aware of, but you are aware of them. And you've promised that your word would not return empty without accomplishing your purpose. So would you do that now, Lord, for your purpose and glory. And we will give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the most frightening experiences that I've ever had was in, I think it was November of 1971. I was in the U.S. Coast Guard and... We were sitting in nice, calm Long Beach Harbor when a call came that a man and his daughter were in a disabled sailboat on the backside of Catalina Island, which, as you know, is about 26 miles offshore to Catalina, and they were way beyond that. Uh, there were 60-mile-an-hour gale force winds that day that were churning up 20 to 30 foot seas. The waves were about as high as the peak of this room. And uh, we were not <clears throat> out of sight of shore before I began to feed the fish. And um, <clears throat> uh, I, I was really, really sick the whole time. But the boat, 82 foot cutter, was like a toy. It would surge up on the waves to the point that the screws would come out of the water and you'd hear them rev up you know really fast and um, then I, I was in on the main deck and I would look out the porthole and green water was coming up over the porthole as we rolled and I thought this is it we're going over and we're going under and then the whole boat would just kind of shudder and shake and it would roll back the other way, and everything in the cabin would go to one side and then to the other, and I, I just thought, we're going to die. And <clears throat> one time as I was going into the head, the bathroom, to relieve my stomach, the uh, metal door slammed shut on my finger, and I almost lost the end of my finger. So it was a rather miserable experience, and um, I tried to 
calm my fears by thinking, you know, you never read about Coast Guard boats going down in storms, so maybe we're going to make it after all. But then when I thought that, I, when I didn't think we would die, I kind of wished we would because I felt so terrible from being seasick. And all in all, it took us nine hours from the time we left Long Beach until the time we had the man and his daughter safely back into the harbor at Avalon Bay there in, in Catalina Island. But, you know, storms are not fun, whether you're talking real life at sea or real life in a trial. And yet, we all know we learn things through those storms that we would not have learned had we not gone through them. And the Christian faith is not just to get us to heaven someday when we die, but it's to make us like Jesus before we get there. And God graciously uses the storms of life that we go through to refine our character and to teach us how to be more like him if we learn the lessons. And this story, short as it is, it's in Matthew and Mark as well, uh, the story of Jesus calming the storm at sea in Luke is the first of a series of miracles that builds up to chapter 9 where Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they mention a number of things. And then he asked them what I call the crucial question. Well, then, who do you say that I am? And that's the most important question any person can answer. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because your eternal destiny hinges on that. And this, this miracle especially... Uh, makes the point, it teaches the disciples who Jesus is and what that means in the trials of life. And it shows us that since Jesus is, in fact, Lord over all, we must trust him when we encounter a storm in our lives. At the end of the story in verse 25, the disciples are just in awe, fearful and amazed, and they ask the question, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? And I believe that's the question Luke wants us to consider as we think about this um, miracle. Who then is this? And the clear answer is that Jesus is Lord over all. In John chapter 1, John begins his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then down in verse 3, he adds, all things came into being through him. Without him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And so, in the beginning, Jesus, the Word, spoke and said, let there be light, and there was light, and all the other let there be's of Genesis chapter 1. And so it's no big deal for him here to say, peace be still to the wind and the waves, and they obey the creator. Now, we all know, and we all can easily say, Jesus is Lord. But it's not so easy to really know that and say that when you're caught in a storm of life. And so 
the Lord for us often does what he did for these disciples. And that is, you'll notice that the Lord led them into this storm. Verse 22. Jesus said to them, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And you have to ask, well, did Jesus know what he was getting them into? And the answer is obvious. Of course he knew. He is omniscient. He knows all things. He knew they would encounter this storm. And although the disciples were, were veteran fishermen, they had been on the sea many times, been in storm, <clears throat> storms at this sea, I think it's safe to say they didn't expect this because they would have said, Lord, uh, look, there's a storm coming. I, I've never been to Israel, but the Sea of Galilee, from what I read, lies in a deep depression with a steep slope, and the winds come down that slope and can stir up a storm on this uh, sea of Galilee very quickly. And it was one of these unexpected storms that hit that evening, unexpected to the disciples, but I would argue not unexpected to the Lord Jesus. And it must have been quite a storm because these guys were experienced sailors on that sea, and even they feared for their lives. But the point is, the sovereign Lord directed them right into the storm. You know, when a serious trial hits, I often hear Christians say, well, the Lord didn't cause this trial. He permitted it. All right, the question is, did he permit it willingly or unwillingly? <laughs> and others will say, some of our Pentecostal brethren often, well, it's Satan. Satan causes all the trials. Well, sometimes God allows Satan to cause trials, as the book of Job makes clear. But, um, you know, they're not getting God off the hook by saying he didn't cause it, he permitted it, or Satan is the one who did it. The Bible clearly shows that all trials come from the loving, gracious, sovereign hand of God. And I'm going to argue that you will not derive any comfort in your trial if you deny that God is behind that trial. Isaiah chapter 45 and Isaiah 40 through 66 is just a great section on the sovereignty of God. But in 45, 6, and 7, the Lord says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Uh, the one forming light and, notice, creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. And I believe, again, you'll only find comfort in your trial if you affirm two things. God is absolutely sovereign over it, and God is absolutely loving in his purpose toward me in it. But you'll notice that, like this storm, storms in life often hit suddenly and without warning. When we uh, lived in California, we had our clock radio come on at 6 a.m. to KNX News Radio. Some of you are Southern California people know that station. And uh, I would lay there in bed a few minutes before I got out of bed listening to the 
news and the um, traffic announcer would sometimes come on the news and say, uh, there was a fatality this morning on uh, Freeway 91, please avoid it at such and such a turn off or whatever, and he would rattle right on going through all the traffic. And I'd lay there and think about it. And I thought, you know, there's some guy that walked out of his door this morning thinking he was going to work, and he got creamed on the freeway, and his family will never talk to him again. He had no idea when he walked out the door that morning. He just thought, another day of work, here I go. Bye, family. Bam. Life was over. And storms can be just like that. They can hit suddenly and without warning. And when a storm hits, it tests your character, but it does something else. Uh, it reveals your character. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary pioneer in China, was interviewing a young missionary who was about to start his uh, career service there in China. And as they talked calmly, Taylor pounded on the table and the teacups rattled and the tea spilled out of the teacup. And the young missionary was startled and wondered, what is he doing? And Taylor said, um, when you begin your work, you will be buffeted in numerous ways. The trials will be like blows, but remember, the trials will only bring out what is already in you. And so the time to develop the resources you need for those sudden unexpected trials is not after they hit. Uh, there's a verse in Proverbs said, if you're slack in the day of distress, your strength is limited. The time to develop <clears throat> the resources you need is every day as you get into God's word and say, Lord, show me Jesus. Help me to know more of who you are and your ways and so on. And then you'll know how more to trust him in the storms. Notice also from this story that storms hit believers. They hit Christ, uh, the boat with Christ in the boat as well as other boats. The Gospel of Mark says there were some other boats sailing alongside of them. And if this were a fairy tale, the story would say, the other boats are tossed all about, but the boat with Christ in it was smooth sailing all the way. But this isn't a fairy tale, and the Bible is not a fairy tale. It tells us about real life. And um, the fact is Christians are not somehow magically protected and exempted from all the trials that other people face. And just because you're in Jesus's boat doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing. It doesn't mean, um, as the uh, people in the prosperity message say, that you won't suffer any disease if you have enough faith, and you'll have plenty of riches if you have enough faith. That is a lie from Satan. And it disarms people and throws them for a loop when they get sick or they are poverty-stricken because of whatever issue. Now, some say, well, yeah, I know that's true, but I'm serving Christ. Don't I get some sort of special exemption? No, probably you're on the front uh, end of getting into the trials. Uh, the storm it's obedient believers who are serving Christ. 
it didn't hit the believers because somehow they had disobeyed the Lord. It says in verse 22, Jesus says, let's go over to the other side. And these men who had committed their life to serve and follow Christ said, okay, Lord commanded, let's go, guys. And they got right into the storm. And you know, obediently following Christ can often put you in the middle of a storm that you wouldn't be in had you not obeyed. I have found in my experience that the most severe times of testing have come after I've taken a, a new step of obedience. Marla and I were married nine months when I decided the Lord wanted us to go back to Dallas and I would finish my seminary. We loaded up my dad's van that he loaned us <clears throat> with a trailer with the meager possessions we had then. Marla was driving our uh, 68 Mustang ahead and I was behind and going up that grade out in the desert there before you get to Desert Center, uh, his van burst the radiator hose and the temperature gauge just shot up immediately. And I flashed my lights at Marla and honked the horn. And uh, for those of you who are young, in those days, they did not have cell phones. They did not exist. So I could not call her and say, help, pull over. And it was probably two or three hours before she realized I'm not behind her. And, and we finally got reconnected. The next day, I had to go into Blythe and get a radiator hose and fix it. We got to Dallas, had a hard time finding an affordable apartment, but finally found one, moved in. Three days later, we're walking from our parking lot, parking space into our apartment, and we got held up at gunpoint, and I turned around, and the gun was right in my face, and I batted it out of my face instinctively, and when he yanked the gun loose, the sight ripped my hand open and had to go and get four stitches in my hand. As I recall, a few days later, I slipped on the mud and cut my hand on a thermos, and I thought, you know, did I take a wrong turn somewhere here that I'm not supposed to be in Dallas? And then we moved back to California after I finished seminary. We had loaded our van up when an ice storm hit Dallas, and if you've ever been in a Texas ice storm, uh, it is like an ice rink everywhere. I mean, it is thick ice we couldn't go anywhere for three days. We finally got back to California, and I began in, in ministry, and our oldest daughter was born. And six months later, we discovered that she had a congenital hip problem, and the doctor put her in a body cast from her armpits down to her ankles, which is not an easy thing for a six-month-old baby. And you can think about the logistics of getting her diapers clean when there's just a little hole for whatever. Uh, that was a trial, and um, she had to wear a leg brace then for a couple of years. The day we decided to move over here, uh, I got home and had four registered letters from the county of San Bernardino informing me of a problem with our septic system. And I found out that the guy that had sold us the house had defrauded us and lied about the system. And that took months to get that figured out. We finally got moved over here and immediately I got into difficulties with four of the existing elders and won't go into why and what, but 
Uh, they were trying to get me fired. So again, <clears throat> it was not a smooth beginning here. And um, all of that because I was trying to serve the Lord. And you will find that often happens when you begin to obey the Lord. And the point is, he doesn't exempt his obedient believers from storms. Often, to shape your character, he takes you right into the storm, and then what happens next? The Lord went to sleep. The Lord went to sleep, and he seems to leave them alone in the storm. It's interesting, this is the only time in the Bible that mentions Jesus sleeping. And he's sacked out in the back of the boat, and the waves are sweeping over them. I mean, it'd be one thing if Jesus had been alert and said, Okay, guys, a storm's coming. You know, Peter, stay on the helm. John, get the sails and get them, you know, secured right. And, and James, get over there and batten down all the gear so we don't lose it. If he had been there and active giving orders in charge, I think the disciples could have thought, well, hang in there. You know, we're going to make it. It's going to be difficult, but Jesus has given the orders. We're okay. But where's Jesus? You know, he's back in the back of the boat, sacked out. Have you ever felt like that in the middle of a storm? You, you pray, and it's like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. The Lord just seems silent. And you're about to go under, and, and you wonder, well, where's the Lord in this? Well, the story shows, in reality, the Lord was with them in the storm. He's always there, even when it seems as if he may not be. But he often waits until we're at our wit's end and realize, I cannot handle this one alone. You know, prayer is an acknowledgement. I can't do life by myself. And Lord, I need you. And so even before the disciples call on him, Jesus is there in the boat. He's going through the storm with him. And there's a wonderful promise in Hebrews 13, 5, where the Lord says, I will never desert you. And in case you missed it, he adds, nor will I ever forsake you. I'll never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. And I love the great triumphant end of Romans 8, where Paul just names all these things that could attack us, including even death. But then he says, in all these things, we tri are triumphant through him who loved us, because nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great story in Daniel 3 you're familiar with. If you grew up in Sunday school, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idols. So they're being obedient to the Lord. And what happens? Did they get exempt? Did they get an exit out of uh, Babylon? No. Nebuchadnezzar throws them in the fiery furnace. And he peers into the flames, expecting to see them incinerated. And he's astounded. And he says to his officials, wasn't it three men? that we cast bound into the, in the midst of the fire? And they said, certainly, O king. And he says, look, I see four men 
loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, he was a polytheist. He didn't know the Lord, but I'm convinced the fourth man was the Lord Jesus in pre-incarnate form right there in the flames with those men. What a precious thing that is. Uh, I would love to know what they talked about. But there's the Lord right in the flames with those men. And so whenever you're, you know, in a storm, even though you may think at first the Lord is not there, uh, he is there. And the first thing we have to do in the storms of life is say, Jesus, you are Lord. And affirm that he is even Lord over the storms. And then the second thing, and it follows from the first, if he's Lord, then we must trust Jesus the Lord in the storms of life. And I think that's the main application of this text because in verse 25, Jesus asks this question, where is your faith? Where's your faith? What a question. I mean, if there's ever a time that panic seems legitimate, I speak from experience, it's when you're in the middle of the storm and you think, my boat might go down right here. I mean, that is panic time. And yet Jesus not only rebukes the storm, he rebukes their faith or their lack thereof. And the fact is that storms often expose how we're not trusting in the Lord. Because we can all fake it in calm waters. You know, I'm doing great. Yeah, isn't Jesus wonderful? Life is smooth. Anybody can do that. And even if it's a minor storm, the disciples could cope with minor storms. They had been in storms like this many times. They were experts at handling their boat. Yeah, they knew how to deal with a storm. And maybe at first, when the winds came up and Jesus is asleep, they thought, hey, no problem. You know, like the commercial, we've got this. Yeah, I've got this. I'm competent. But often a, a crisis shows a side of ourselves that we're blind to, and the Lord reveals new areas where we come to realize, I'm not trusting him as I should in this storm. And so we all have to learn our weakness so that we'll rely on his strength, as Paul says there at the end of 2 Corinthians 12. Storms often show us things that we don't see in calmer times. For example, storms reveal our distorted view of the problem. The disciples cry out excitedly in verse 24, Master, Master, we're perishing. They think we're all going down. Now, stop and think about it. Who's on board with them? God's Messiah, promised from Genesis chapter 3, all the way through the Old Testament. He's here now. Do you think the Lord is going to allow his Messiah to drown in a storm at sea? But in their panic, the disciples have this distorted view of the problem, and we often do that. You know, well, I'm going to die. Yeah, okay. What then? <laughs> I go to be with Jesus, right? Get perspective. But I would argue not all fear is wrong, but I think Jesus rebuked the disciples here because I think their fear was excessive. Sometimes fear is useful. There's a bear there. I need to get out of here. 
you know, it can make you take action to save your life or the life of a loved one. But I think fear is excessive and wrong when we're so panicked that we're not thinking clearly about the problem and about our God and putting all that into perspective where we realize, wait a minute, God is still in control. He is still the Lord of all, the creator of heaven and earth. He is my Lord. Okay, this is scary, but I can endure. But storms reveal not only our distorted view of the problem and our excessive fear, they also reveal our distorted view of ourselves. Master, master, we are perishing. Well, technically we included Jesus, but I have a hunch he wasn't their focus. I, I don't think they were saying, master, master, if we don't get out of here, you, the Messiah, are going to perish. I think their focus was, I'm going to die. You know, they were fearing for their own lives. And storms have a way of exposing our self-focus. We can be focused on others until uh, it looks like we're going to die, and then suddenly self-preservation kicks in. Often self-pity crowds in in a trial. Wait a minute, I've been following the Lord. I'm doing his will. Why is this happening to poor me? You know, and we begin to focus on ourselves, but self-focus there. Uh, is wrong. We need to stop and get a bigger picture. What is the Lord doing in this storm? But then finally, storms reveal our distorted view of the Lord Jesus. In verse 25, again, in awe, the disciples ask, who then is this? And that was their problem. They didn't know yet fully who Jesus really is. It came gradually. They began to understand it. But clearly, if they had known who Jesus is, they wouldn't have been so amazed at what happened. They underestimated his power. And, you know, we often do the same thing. A trial hits, and man, we're scrambling, and we try everything except to trust in the supernatural power of our Lord. And our distorted view of the problem clouds our vision and we fail to focus on the miraculous, marvelous power of the Lord and his person. In Mark 4.38, <clears throat> the parallel, um, the disciples say, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Have you ever thought that in a trial? Lord, have you stopped caring for me? No, I'm your servant down here, and I'm going through this. But it's easy even to doubt you know, that the Lord exists at a time like that. But that's why by faith in a trial, we have to affirm two things. Lord, you are the sovereign of the universe. And Lord, your love never fails. Even if I drown in the storm. Now, we often think we're trusting in the Lord and then the storm hits and it reveals how we're not really trusting him. But storms should drive us to trust in the Lord of the storm. I think the disciples could have protested, well, we were trusting in the Lord. After all, we called out to him for help. But they weren't really trusting in the Lord, or he wouldn't have said, where's your faith? So what they needed most in the middle of this dire situation is to trust in the Lord. And you know, that's what we need also. 
trusting in the Lord has fallen on hard times. I have read in books by Christian psychologists, if a pastor tells somebody in a trial, you know what you really need to do is trust in the Lord. This one psychologist who claims to be a Christian said, that's worthless medicine. That's a direct quote. He said, it's worthless medicine. What you need is his psychological techniques to get you through all this. Baloney, what you need in any trial is to trust in the living God who led you into the trial, who is with you in it, who is teaching you more to trust him in it, if you will let him. And so trusting the Lord has sustained the saints in all manner of trial, even as they face martyrdom for his namesake. And if you don't know how to trust the Lord in the storms of life, you're being disobedient because we are saved by faith and then we are commanded to walk by faith. Step by step trusting even in all of the storms of life that hit us all. And the better we know the Lord, the better we can trust him. And the crucial question, as I said, is that one the disciples ask, who then is this? Who is Jesus? Well, the story itself, without going into extensive theology, which the whole Bible shows us who Jesus is, but right here we learn he's fully human. Here he is, tired enough to sleep in probably an open boat with the waves sloshing in around him, and he is sacked out because he is so tired. And the book of Hebrews encourages us in chapter 4.15, it says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted um, in all things as we are, yet without sin. But the story not only shows that Jesus is fully human, it also shows that Jesus is fully divine. He is God. He just gets up, winds, cease, see, be still. And it's done, just as smooth as glass. If you've ever been a storm at sea, you know it doesn't get calm right after the wind stops. It takes a day or two for the surging waves to calm. But here, Jesus speaks. And just as his full humanity comforts us because we know he can sympathize with our weaknesses, so knowing his full deity encourages us because we know there is nothing too difficult for the Lord. He spoke the universe into existence. What's the problem? He can help. And there isn't a gust of wind, not a drop of water that can defy his sovereign will. So the better we know him, the better we can trust him in our trials. Also, the bigger the storm, the more the Lord's going to be glorified when we trust him. Uh, the chief end of man is not to use God to enjoy life without problems. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. <clears throat> and as the Lord says in, I think it's Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue and you will honor me. So in our time of trouble, as we trust in the Lord, um, 
he gets the glory. And the disciples here get a glimpse of his majestic power. He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And so the bigger the problem is, the more our almighty Lord gets the glory when he delivers us. Corey Tinboom, who wrote The Hiding Place, telling about her trials, she was incarcerated in the Nazi concentration camps in Germany because she and her family um, harbored a number of Jewish families and saved their lives. And when she would speak about her experiences, people would come up to her sometimes and say, my, Corey, what a great faith you have. And she had a standard comeback. She would say, no, it's what a great God I have. As you see how great God is, he gets the glory, not us for our faith. And then the final thing to see here is the more we trust the Lord in this storm, the more we'll know him and be able to trust him in the next storm. It's interesting that in this storm, the winds and the waves, they obey Jesus without question. But the disciples had to learn to trust him. It's a choice. First, they feared the storm. Then they feared the Lord. Their fear of the storm was due to their lack of faith. And their fear of the Lord, I think, stemmed from their lack of really knowing his awesome power. But I think the point of the story and Jesus' pointed question, where then is your faith, is faith is not an automatic response. Faith is a choice we have to make based on knowing who the Lord is. And we often have to make it in the midst of circumstances that are screaming at us, your God doesn't care. In fact, your God may not even exist because if he did, why would you be as his follower in this difficult situation. And often, if you have trouble trusting God in this storm, go back to a previous one, a previous experience where you've trusted in the Lord and rest there. Or if you're having trouble in your own experience, well, the Bible is full of stories of saints who trusted the Lord. And go back there and read your Bible. Or outside of the Bible, my favorite kind of book to read are Christian biographies. And uh, if you're not familiar with it, on the church website, I got a list of, I don't know, 100 or more biographies. And uh, I just wrote a book on that that's on Amazon. But some of those biographies have changed my life. I, twice I have read the story of Adoniram Judson. He and his dear wife, they were the first missionaries sent out from U.S. soil in 1812. And they went to Burma. And the trials they faced in Burma were incredible. They first lost an eight-month-old son after a stillborn on the way over there. And then they lost an eight-month-old son. And the first time I read that book, my son was eight months old. And man, that hit me like a ton of bricks. And they buried their son in the backyard and kept on. They found the Burmese people totally resistant to the gospel. Eventually, Judson was unfairly imprisoned as a spy. And the evil guards would come in at night and tie all the prisoners' ankles to a bamboo pole and raise it up by a pulley until all that was touching was their neck and shoulders. 
and that was the way they had to try to sleep while the rats were coming around trying to nibble on them. He survived that whole ordeal somehow, got out of prison, and uh, his wife died. And she had had a baby while he was in prison that had been conceived before he went in there. And a short time later, the baby died. And Judson was just in despair and went out and lived in a hut in the, in the forest, tiger-infested forest, for a while until he got his bearings. He eventually remarried. That wife and he had several children, but then she died. After 38 years on the field, he came home and then created quite a scandal because he was 58 years old and um, he married a 29-year-old author. And she went back to Burma with him for the last four years of his life, which were pretty happy. He got tuberculosis, and in that day, the cure for TB was a, a sea voyage. He went to sea and died at sea. His young wife got TB also, and she came back to the States and died in her 30s. But first, God used her to write down the history of the work in Burma, which you can read about in To the Golden Shore, the story of Adoniram Judson. It's a life-changing book. Um, you know, after reading Judson, I used to think, yeah, it was kind of a hard board meeting, but at least they aren't stringing me up by the heels in a rat-infested prison. You know, I don't have it too bad. Um, and uh, it kind of helps put your perspective, your trials in perspective. And you can trust God in the little storm you're in, realizing the storms that God has taken some of his saints through. And, you know, I've heard Bible teachers who teach this story, and they'll say, with Christ in the boat, you can smile at the storm. Yeah, there's a sense in which that's true, but I don't want to give you a fairy tale, they lived happily ever after ending to the story. And you have to ask the hard question, what happens if Jesus doesn't calm the storm? What happens if the boat sinks and you're in it? And that does happen sometimes. Read the Bible, John the Baptist. You know, he's serving the Lord. He's the forerunner to Messiah. He gets in prison because he confronted the wicked Herod. Herod gets drunk at a party and... Um, off comes John the Baptist's head. The boat wasn't delivered. It sank. Or you read the book of Acts, and there's that wonderful story of Peter being delivered from prison. Miraculously, the first automatic door, the prison doors open, and the chains fall off, and Peter walks out. But don't miss the part of the story. Herod put James to death with the sword. That's John's brother. He died. Peter lived. And you read the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Boy, what a triumphant chapter of faith. By faith they conquered kingdoms and they shut the mouth of lions and da-da-da. It goes on. Don't quit right there. By faith some were sawn in two. And some did not receive their release but were tortured. They lived in caves you know, in sheepskins and goatskins, men of whom the world is not worthy. And you say, well, maybe they weren't trusting God. And the author says, all these died 
in faith, not receiving the promise. It's there for our instruction. And so the answer, what do you do when the boat sinks is, you sing the doxology as you go under. You know, praise God, the boat is sinking, and we're all going to die. But we have Jesus. And many saints have done that very thing. I didn't mention it first hour in the message, but John Wesley had come to the U.S. as a missionary. He didn't know Jesus in a saving way. On the way back to Europe, they're in a storm, and the boat's going to sink, they think. And all the, the Moravian believers were singing praise to God, and Wesley couldn't believe it. And through that, he went to a Moravian meeting, and you know the story there. His heart was strangely warmed, and he got saved. John Huss, we saw his statue in Prague Square there, and we actually got to duck our heads in and look at his church. It's still there in Prague. And uh, the Catholics promised him safe passage to a trial because of his heresy. He was a reformer. He got there, and they lied and put him in prison and then burned him at the stake. And you know how he died? Singing. Huss died singing praise to God. Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer, two Protestants, when Bloody Mary, a strong Catholic, came to the throne in England. And uh, they're tied up together, back to back at the stake. And as the flames were lit to burn them to their deaths, um, Latimer cried out, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And they died a horrif horrifying, tortuous death in the flames. Hudson Taylor, read his story. He lost his first beloved wife, Maria, after about 11 years of marriage. And as he stood at her grave with the tears streaming down her face, he sang, Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I'm finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Do you know Jesus that way? Well, it doesn't happen all of a sudden in the storm. It happens day by day by day, taking the little trials, the little ripples, and trusting him there. If you've never trusted him for salvation, you begin there. That's how we get saved. We believe that Jesus, the spotless son of God, died on the cross in the place of our sins, and you trust that. And then we're commanded, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him by faith. And this week, it may be minor, I hope not, but it could be major, storm will hit your life. And if it doesn't hit this week, I can guarantee you, if you live much longer, you'll be in a storm. How will you survive the waves? Learning to trust him even now. And then, even if your boat sinks, you can go out singing, knowing the peace that passes all understanding because your God is sovereign and your God is loving. Dear Lord, thank you for this short little story.
that is so packed with practical lessons for us as we seek to honor and glorify you. And Lord, I know there are some here right now who probably need to trust you as Savior. I pray that you would open their eyes to their desperate need and to the reality that their good works will never save themselves. There are some who are in major storms. And I pray, Lord, that your grace would be sufficient for them in their weakness. And we don't know your sovereign will in the storms, whether the boat will sink or the waves will be stilled, but we know you're the sovereign and loving God. So help us to trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.